in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight, Psalm 108. The title of this psalm, A Song, A Psalm of David. This psalm is actually a collection of two other psalms with slight modifications. The first part of the psalm from verse 1 to 5 is identical with Psalm 57 from verses 7 to 11. The same words, exact words. And the second part of this psalm from verse 6 to 13 taken identical from Psalm 60 from 5 to 12. So this psalm actually some verses from Psalm 57 some verses from Psalm 60. That's it. It is not known at what time or under what circumstances this psalm is composed and why it's composed in this way and why some verses taken from one psalm and other verses from another psalm and combined together to compose a new psalm. It may have been that what had been expressed on two different occasions, the occasion of Psalm 57 and the occasion of Psalm 60, might now be fulfilled or accomplished. And the thoughts which had been expressed separately in these two Psalms now are united together and spoken in praise to God. However, other opinions that many Psalms refer to to David, maybe they actually written in a prophetic way about the captivity in Babylon. David, when he composed Psalm 57, he prophesied about the captivity in Babylon. And when he composed Psalm 60, he actually prophesied about the captivity in in Babylon. The people who were taken captive in Babylon, they took verses from Psalm 57 and verses from Psalm 60 and combined them together because with this combination, it will reflect their condition at the captivity in Babylon. So these are David's words, written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But they took it and applied to their current challenge when they were captives in Babylon. Apparently, Israel was threatened by enemies. And the second part of Psalm 60 was very appropriate prayer for this need to be delivered from their enemies. That's from verses 6 to 13. But the complaint of the severe disaster with which Psalm 60 opens, so the beginning of Psalm 60, is not appropriate to their condition now in captivity. That's why they replaced the beginning of Psalm 60 with thanksgiving praise. They took it from Psalm 57. They want to praise God 
although they still under the captivity. So they took the second part of Psalm 60 and then added to it verses from Psalm 57 and this combination between the two Psalms expressed their condition accurately. St. Augustine comments on this psalm and says, We are taught by this psalm that those titles which seem to refer to history are most rightly understood prophetically. So any title, we have to understand it in a prophetic way. For example, captivity in Babylon symbolizes our captivity under Satan according to the object of the composition of the psalms. Yet this psalm is composed of the latter portions of two, Psalm 57 and Psalm 60, whose titles are different. So the title of Psalm 57 is different than the title of Psalm 60, where it is signified that each conquered in a common object not in the surface of the history. The title of 57 corresponds to the object of Psalm 57, and the title of Psalm 60 corresponds to the object of Psalm 60, and both of them we can take it in prophetic way, but in depth of prophecy, the object of both being united in this one. So when they united together, that's why they called this psalm what? A song. Just it's a song the title of which a song or a psalm of David. Because this song is composed from these two psalms, resembling neither of the former titles. If you compare a song, a psalm of David, with the title of Psalm 57, it's different. With the title of Psalm 60, it's different. But the three psalms are the words of David, otherwise than the word David. From verse 1 to 5, declaration of God's praise. From 1 to 5, declaration of God's praise. And this part was taken from Psalm 57. From 6 to 13, it is declaration of God's victory. And this part is taken from Psalm 60. So let's start by verse 1. O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise, even with my glory. From verse 1 to 5, a steadfastness of joyous thanksgiving for past mercies. So God was merciful to David in the past. That's why his heart now is steadfast. It's not shaken, even by afflictions, even by hardship. Because he is confident of the mercies of God. And this opened his mouth with joyous thanksgiving. And prayer that God will manifest himself as he supremely exalted ruler of the world. So as God was merciful and compassionate to David in the past, in the same way David trusts that in the future, God actually will manifest himself and will deliver his people because he is the supremely exalted ruler of the world. So the psalmist's steadfastness will 
And purpose is to sing God's praises. So his will and his purpose is to sing God's praises. His heart is prepared. His heart is willing and ready to sing and give praise to God. The steadfast heart leads to a singing heart. As I told you, when my hope and confidence in God is steadfast, then I will open my mouth with praises to God. In a spiritual sense, a heart fixed and established is one that is assured of its salvation by Christ. I am sure that Christ will save me. Rooted and grounded in the love of God. Why? Because God loves me. Not because of my worthiness, but because God loves me. Firmly built on the foundation which is Christ. As St. Paul said, there is no other foundation I can lay except Jesus Christ. And does not move from the hope of the gospel. If Satan tried to cast a doubt in my heart, I'm not going to move from this hope by what the world offers. The world can tempt me, but I will not follow the temptation of the world. I have one hope, to be saved in Christ. I don't want anybody to understand assured of its salvation by Christ, like in the Protestant way, when they say once saved, always saved. No, I'm not saying this. But I have confidence in the love of God that He will help me to be saved and to overcome the temptations in the world. Like a student, he is confident that he will pass the exam. But if you ask him, are you sure that you're going to pass the exam 100%? He will tell you, I have confidence enough that I will pass the exam. But maybe something will happen the last minute and I will not. So this is different from the Protestant understanding of salvation, once saved, always saved. But he said here, my heart is steadfast, I will sing and I will give praise, even with my glory. What does it mean, I will sing with my glory? What does this mean? The first meaning, it is my honor, my glory, to be engaged in giving praises and singing praises to God. But the word glory, maybe some commentator understood it like the tongue. So with my glory, with my tongue, because the person can glorify God by his tongue. Others said with my glory, the soul is the glory of man. So with my glory was mean with my tongue and my soul. Others said my glory means David praised God with the best of his being. Whatever glory belongs to me, I will direct it toward God in praise. So the earnest praise offered to God was music, and David was a skilled musician. This skill to be a musician, part of his glory. When you listen to a musician, too, wow, that's you know very, very good musician. This can give glory to the person. So when he said, with my glory, means with my skill as a musician, I will offer to God this praise with music. 
That's why in verse 2 he said, Awake, lute and harp, I will awaken the dawn. Lute is a stringed instrument, usually with 12 strings, and played with singers. Harp, stringed instrument, consisting of 10 strings. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that it is played with a key. But from 1 Samuel 16, 1 Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 19, it appears, however, that the harp sometimes is played with fingers, like the lute. And David intended to praise God at dawn, before sunrise, I will awaken the dawn. He offered the first fruit of the day to praise God, to give him thanks. David was determined to give God the best in the praise. So he gave God the best part of the day before he gets busy or distracted. No time in the day is more appropriate for worship than the early morning. And no object is more worthy to awaken us from our sleep than a desire to praise the Lord. And there is no more appropriate way to begin the day than by prayer and praise. Father thought about the lute and harp are symbolic. Maybe one symbolizes the body, the other symbolizes the soul. Or just talents, energies that awake to praise and glorify God. So he is saying to his body, to his talents, to his energies, to his soul, awake and glorify God very early in the morning. Saint Jerome is speaking spiritually about this verse, and he said, At the harp has many strings, and if one of them is broken, the whole instrument would be useless. It's likewise in our works. If we disobey one commandment, our whole harp would be useless. St. Augustine, in his commentary on all the Psalms, he usually tried to read all the Psalms from messianic perspective. All Psalms are pointing to the Messiah. So he said, the lute and harp are the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. One according to his divinity, performing miracles, or according to his humanity, like being hungry or thirsty or falling asleep. Verse 3. I will praise you, O Lord, among the people, and I will sing praises to you among the nations. So it's not a private praise, but public praise. David directed his praise to God, yet he was praising him in the presence of peoples and among the nations. His praise was not secret, but open and public. As if David's joy is too great to be kept within any narrower limit than the entire earth. He wants to praise God among the nations, the people of the whole earth. He will have his hymn of praise go forth to all the peoples and all the nations. Also, in a prophetic way, the people and the nations refer to the Gentiles. As St. Paul said in Romans 15, verse 9, 
and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, for this reason, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. He gives the reason in verse 4 why he will praise God among the people and nations. Why? Verse 4. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches to the clouds. So mercy and truth. And usually the Bible speaks about mercy and truth, mercy and justice, love and control, which reaches from earth to heaven, need the whole world to praise God. David understood that the mercy of God was so great that if it were measured, it would extend above the heaven. And his truth is so great, reach above the clouds. The heavens are great, but the mercy of God is greater and abundant. The skies are high and bright, but the truth of God is more eminent, more glorious. And here I want to bring to your attention, many people now speak about the salvation and the cross and the ransom as if it is only an act of mercy. There is no truth in it. How come? In the book of Psalms, every time he mentioned mercy, he mentioned truth. We cannot separate the truth from mercies. In the same way, I cannot separate the legal part of the crucifixion, which is the truth that God carried our punishment. God died for our sins. God became a curse and a sin to remove our sins. That's the legal part. And the mercy appeared in healing our nature. I cannot separate these two elements as some contemporary theologians refuse to accept the legal part of the cross. Here he said, your mercy is above heaven and your truth above the clouds. It's more glorious than the clouds. We cannot see above the heaven and above the clouds. Therefore, what we perceive of God's mercy and truth is limited because his mercy and truth above heaven and above the clouds. So there is still more mercy and truth we cannot see. St. Jerome says, there is no creature who does not lean upon and in need of the compassion of God. Verse 5, from verse 6, as I said, he will start asking God to deliver them. So verse 5 actually works as a transition from praising God to pleading with God for deliverance. So in verse 5 he said, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth. Verse 5 is a proper transition to the second part of the psalm, which is prayer for deliverance and expressions of confidence in the help of God. God who made heaven and earth is the God who is to be exalted above heaven and above earth, because he is the creator of heaven and earth. A God of great mercy and truth is worthy of great praise and recognition of glory. If the measure of God's mercy and truth are high above heaven and clouds, 
then the honor and recognition given to God should be also greater than heaven and earth and, and clouds. That's why he said, Be exalted, O God, above heaven and your glory above the earth because your mercy and truth are above heaven and clouds. Several fathers apply verse 5 to the resurrection of Christ. They say that by the spirit of prophecy, David seeing the Lord Christ ascending to heaven in glory, he ascended to heaven in glory and his soul exalted. And your glory above the earth be exalted above heaven is about the resurrection and ascension. This is the second part of the psalm, prayer for deliverance. That your beloved, why he is telling him, be exalted, O God, above heaven. That your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. So from verse 6 to 13, prayer for help. Based on what? Based on the promise of God to give Israel possession of Canaan and reign over the surrounding nation which is the promise of God to all of us that he will give us heaven as inheritance, the promised land, with an expression of confidence that God alone, only God alone, can help and will surely give his people the victory. So from verse 6 to 9, he will mention cities in the promised land. From 10 to 13, he will say, God alone can help. So David's prayers from verse 1 to 5 now transformed into prayer. Asking that he would be rescued from his present distress. God, I'm praising you. Now I'm asking you to deliver me from the current distress. The beginning of Psalm 108 is so filled with praise that we didn't even know David was in trouble. And this is a a lesson to us when we are in distress or in trouble. We need also to praise God and give thanks to Him because God will make everything work out for good to those who love God. He only mentioned his distress after setting his heart and mind right with praise from his entire being, with all my glory. And here, that your beloved, of course, in English, we don't differentiate between whether here is speaking about plural or singular. So, beloved refers only to David or to all the children of God. But in Arabic, it's plural in the Arabic. David understood that God loved him. That's why he said, you're beloved. So he appealed to God on this, that basis. I know I am your beloved, that your beloved may be delivered. And also David understand that many others are loved by God, not him only. But his heart came to God as if he was the only one loved by God. And this is the beauty of God. Although he loved each one of us, so all of us are his beloved. But each one feels as if I am the only beloved by God, not one of men. So he said, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. 
Right hand here is regarded as strength. David felt that the case, the, the distress, requires and needs the right hand of God. David called upon God to bring all his skill, all his power, all his strength to rescue him. Father said the right hand of God is his son, Jesus Christ. Save by your right hand, save by your son, so the salvation of all mankind was fulfilled. Also, we know David was a prophet. He was referred to as a prophet in Acts chapter 2, verse 30. And this verse can be about a prophecy about God's ultimate victory over all the nations. Save by your right hand and hear me. Verse 7. God has spoken in his holiness. Now God is speaking. What did he say? What did God say? I will rejoice. I will divide Shekim and measure out the value of Sukkoth. So he began by noting that this proclamation came from God's holiness. After David prayed and said, Save with your right hand, hear me, God is responding. He's responding from his holiness. Because his character is being separate and set apart from all his creation. He is the only all holy. But in his holiness also means promised or sworn. As we read in Psalm 89, once I have sworn by my holiness, or in Amos chapter 4 verse 2, the Lord God has sworn by his holiness. God's holiness includes his whole essential nature. And that nature makes it impossible for God to break his promise. So when he said God speaks in his holiness, means his promises cannot be broken. Salvation will not make us only happy, but God will rejoice also. As the Lord said, heaven rejoice with the return of one lost sheep. Salvation will not only bring joy to the heart of the believer, but God himself will say, I will rejoice. God is represented as a victorious warrior, conquering the land and dividing it out to his people. God is the owner of the land. This land was taken captive by Satan, and God restored it, and God now will divide it to his people, as he will give us the promised, the eternal inheritance in heaven. So God say, I will divide. I will rejoice. I will divide Shekim and measure out the valley of Sukkoth. I will divide signifying unquestionable right of ownership. God is the owner. He will divide. God declared his sovereignty over the land. He would divide and measure it as he pleased. So God's response takes us back to the day of Joshua and the downfall of the land of Canaan when Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land and Joshua According to God's economy, he divided the land to them. So David took us back in history to the time of Joshua, 
in a prophetic way that as God gives him the promised land, God will give us the eternal inheritance. So God declares that he will triumph just as he did before. As he did in the earthly promised land, he will do with the heavenly promised land. What is Shekim and what is Sukkoth here? When he said, I will divide Shekim, I will measure out the value of Sukkoth. Shekim, the central part of importance, represents the territory west of the Jordan, Jordan River. So it was west of the Jordan River. Valley of Sukkoth, somewhere to the south of Jabok, between Peniel and the Jordan, represents territory east of the Jordan. Sukkoth on the east, east, southeast, and Shekim on the west. So these two places, in particular, why they are named Shekim and Sukkot? Because of their connection to the history of Jacob. Jacob stopped first in Sukkot, then he stopped in Shekim when he returned to Canaan. And God said to Jacob when he appeared to him in the dream, he told him, I will give you and your descendants this land. So God will fulfill or has fulfilled his promise to Jacob, giving his descendant the land in which their great ancestor Jacob settled on his journey to Canaan. Because as I told you in Genesis chapter 33, he stopped at Sukkoth and at Shekin. So God has spoken in his holiness. Maybe also understood his holiness referred to his son as St. Paul said in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 that God spoke in former times to our forefathers through the prophets. In the latter times he spoke to us in his son, his holy one. And according to St. Jerome, Shekim means shoulders. If the Lord Jesus Christ by his love has readily bowed his back to carry the cross on his shoulder for our sake, God granted us as well to carry the cross on our shoulders, that Shekim, together with him, was Christ, as a sweet and joyful yoke, when he said, carry your yoke on you. Verse 8, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine. This is the land of Bashan. Gilead is the land of Bashan, in which the tribe of Manasseh settled. And this also territory east of the Jordan, and the tribes settled there. So Gilead is mine, but I give it to Manasseh. And Manasseh settled there. And why he mentioned Ephraim and Judah? Ephraim and Judah stand for the tribes west of the Jordan. So on the east of Jordan was Manasseh, but the other tribes were in the west of Jordan. So God claims all as his own, east and west of the Jordan. Therefore, all can claim God's protection. If we are his, then God will protect us. And as you know, 
the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, kingdom of Israel and kingdom of Judah. The main tribe in the kingdom of Israel was Ephraim. So sometimes when God says Ephraim, it refers to the kingdom of Israel. And the main tribe of the kingdom of Judah is the tribe of Judah. And Ephraim, as you know, he is the son of Joseph and one of the prominent tribes of Israel. As I told you, the northern tribes collectively called Ephraim the kingdom of Israel after this large and influential tribe. So God said about Ephraim, his helmet, expressing the strength of God and the security. It is compared to the warrior helmet. And if Ephraim expressed God's strength, God's power, then tribe of Judah, Judah actually is the grandfather of Jesus Christ. And Jesus came as a descendant of Judah. And he is the lawgiver. Tribe of Judah expressed the rule of God and the government as the lawgiver. Because Judah was the tribe of King David and later the Messiah. So who is the greatest lawgiver? Is Christ himself who came of this tribe. So here when he said, Ephraim is the helmet for my head, Judah, my lawgiver, Judah represents here Christ, the lawgiver. And helmet means strength and protection. And the repetition of mine, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, and the repetition of word my helmet, my lawgiver, reflect everything is his. In verse 9, we see the contrast. God spoke about Moab is my washpot. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia, I will triumph. The contrast, after the honor he gave to Ephraim and Judah, there is disgrace to Moab and Edom. So the neighboring nations are reduced to servitude and subjection. Why? Why Moab, God said, my washpot? Because of its pride, as we read in Isaiah 16, verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud of his haughtiness and his pride and his wrath. So now Moab is compared to a vessel which is brought to the victorious warrior to wash his feet in when he returns from the battle, my washpot. So the old enemy of God and his people or is degraded to do lowly service. In close connection with this metaphor, he says, over Edom, I will cast my shoe. So Edom is like the slave to whom the warrior threw his sandals to carry or to clean. Also, Edom was very prideful, haughty and rebellious, as we read in Obadiah chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. So must perform the duty of the lowest slave. So God's dominion also is expressed over this very long and bitter enemy of Israel, Philistine. Over Philistia I will triumph. And in a prophetic way, this means Christ will triumph over all his enemies. Jesus Christ is at God's right hand 
in full assurance that all his enemies, the enemies of God, shall in due time have put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 10. Who will bring me into the strong city? So now David is asking, after God was talking from verse 7 to verse 9. Now David is speaking in verse 10. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Edom was a very strong city. How can I go to this city? No power on earth can help me to go to this strong city. Only God. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off because of our sins? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, that's why you were defeated? Before David confronted a strong city of Edom, he started this psalm by praising God. And he expressed his total confidence in God's dominion over Israel and over the whole world. Now he's asking this question, who will bring me into the strong city? As if he had said, these cities are difficult things indeed. And I may well ask, when I consider how strong and powerful these nations are, by what power shall I enter that strongly fenced city? Who will lead me to a doom? None can do it except God. In the same way in our spiritual warfare, who can give me victory over my warfare, over my bad habits? Only God. So this is an important and eternal principle. Anything that seems undefeated can be overcome by the power of God. Apparently, Israel was defeated several times because of their sins, and God forsook them. So David prayed this prayer in light of recent defeats, recognizing that those defeats came because God's grace and favor did not shine upon Israel's armies. If God did not go out with our armies, there was no hope for victory. For the help of man is useless, as he said in verse 12. God, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. So if you don't help us, we will be defeated again. So although God has seemed to reject and forsake them, they had no other resource but him. In verse 11 he told him, God who cast us off, God who did not go out with our armies. But David relied upon God, even when Israel seemed under a cloud, or the Lord cast them off. Sometimes I believe that God doesn't love me. God is angry with me, disappointed with me. Even during this time, I have no other resource except God. And as David returned back to God, I need to return back to God in praises, thanksgiving, in confidence that he loves me and he will deliver me. The psalmist trusted that God would not forsake them altogether. O God, who cast us off? Although God disciplines, but because he loves us, then he will rescue us. 
as we read in Isaiah 54, verse 7, for a mere moment I have forsaken you. Mere moment. But with great mercies I will gather you. David had seen many brave men accomplish great things on the field of battle. But for David and for Israel, the help of man was not enough. It is useless, as he said in verse 12, for the help of man is useless. God's help will lead them to victory. As we read in Deuteronomy 33, there is no one like the God of Jerusalem who rides the heaven to help us. The eternal God is your refuge. David's formula is so simple. Without God, they can do nothing. Only with God and through God, they could win great victories and accomplish great things. The Lord Jesus Christ said, without me you cannot achieve anything. So this victory actually belonged to God because only through him we will be victorious. As he said in verse 13, through God, only through God, we will do valiantly. For it is he, it is God, who shall trade down our enemies. God is the one who will trade out our enemies. But David here, when he said, through God we will do valiantly, means what? Means God will not do the the work instead of me. This doesn't mean Israel avoid fighting and stand passive and God will do everything. No. I cannot say I will not study and God will make me pass the exam. No. I will not fight the good fight and God will make me defeat Satan. No. Instead they would fight, but they fight through God. So God will not fight instead of me, but I will fight through him. Their fighting through God would be brave and valiant. And in it, they would see God trade down our enemies. There is a human part and divine part. My part, I will do it through the divine part. And then God will trade down our enemies. God will not overcome Edom, but the people who trust in God will themselves do the valiant deed. They will go to the war with their weapons and fight Edom, but they will do it through God. This is the way of victory. If you are waiting passively and think God will do it for you, no. You need to do your part. It is only through God and His grace that we can at any time achieve or accomplish anything. And when praises and prayer have preceded the battle, as he did in Psalm 108, he started by giving thanks to God. One may expect to see valiant heroic deeds and significant victories. I praise the Lord, I trust Him, I will do my work with zeal, then the outcome of all of this will be victory. So last comment on this psalm. Although the psalm as explained, it's part of two separate psalms, 57 and 60, 
But this Psalm 108, if I did not tell you it is taken from two other Psalms, you will feel it complete in itself. There is no break or discrepancy in the flow of the thought. But the unity is as perfect as though it had been an original composition. And in spite of the fact that in the original Psalms, the parts which are used here have different connection, different situation, different background, yes, yet as used here, they seem to be exactly suited to the new use of Israel. This concludes Psalm 108. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.